You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is J.D. Chang, a serial entrepreneur and founder of Crushing the Myth, an Asian American speaker series about showing that Asian America today is more than just the model minority label and telling Asian American stories that make people listen, learn and inspired. Welcome to the podcast, J.D. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to be here. I'm really interested to know more about Crushing the Myth. It's really interesting to me what you're doing with this, and I think a lot of people would be uh, would really like to know a little bit more about your personal journey and how you got yourself in a, into a place to do this, because to me it seems like crushing the myths to a lot of people would be something that to a lot of people is more like a passion project or something. So if you don't mind, I'd like to delve a little bit more into like your background and um, how you got onto this path, you know, all that. Sure. What would you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah, where did it all start for you? Yeah, I was I was born in Taiwan, and my family immigrated to the uh, United States when I was very young, at six, and grew up in uh, Texas outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, pretty uh, common suburban upbringing. Uh, and then uh, for my university, I went to Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after after graduating Wake Forest, I ended up uh, really then living and traveling and, and doing a multitude of uh, careers. But I've lived and worked in Austin, uh, in Los Angeles, in Taiwan, mm-hmm. Taipei, Taiwan, San Francisco, D.C., New York, and, and Austin. Again, those are the the major hubs that I uh, have lived and worked from. Mm-hmm. And um, where your upbringing, like, um, what, how diverse was the community um, where yeah. you grew up? It was pretty diverse, not so much Asian representation based, but uh, we were Euless or Bedford. Bedford is the city that I grew up right outside the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, we had uh, African Americans, um, uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans. Some, not not a lot by any means, but uh, and then we also had a number of Pacific Islanders uh, from Toga, Tongans, yeah, from Toga, uh, and so we had a. It was it, it was a five A school in Texas, which means that it was the largest denomination of public high schools it was the largest group we had like 2,000 people in my uh, three-year high school uh, class I'm sorry in my high school so in grades 10 11 and 12 we had about 1,500 to 2,000 people um, it was also though majority uh, white uh, Americans see I'm just curious because you know crushing the myth like obviously that's a reference to the model minority myth and so I was just wondering like what your personal experience of the model minority myth has been when you first heard of it if you've ever had to deal with um, the model minority myth yourself I led a a few like I mentioned before I've had a few different jobs and a few different careers out right out of college I was a film producer uh, in LA I, I was what they would 
I, I was and am what they call a line producer. So kind of a production manager on movie sets. Uh, I did that for a number of years. Uh, later on, um, started technology startups. And then I led, uh, I was the board president of the Austin Asian American Film Festival, a nonprofit in Austin. So it wasn't until my mid-30s where kind of growing up, I never thought that I was the prototypical uh, model minority Asian. Uh, I didn't go to a, you know, Wake Forest is a fantastic school, but I didn't, it's not an Ivy League, so I didn't go to an Ivy League. I didn't go to either of the coasts. Um, and I grew up in the middle of the country. Um, I was in valedictorian in my school. I was number 10. And then I was, you know, class president. And so I never really considered myself to be uh, like an Asian that you would think about stereotypically. Uh, then in my mid thirties, you know, started reflecting upon my life and realized that <clears throat> maybe, it, uh, I wouldn't say that I was running from anything, but I do remember even in high school, um, you know, thinking like my, my, my parents would say, uh, so-and-so's cousin or so-and-so's child is, um, their grades are number one or number two. Um, you know, why can't your grades be, you know, that like you're number 10. <laughs> and I, I would recall going, well, I don't want to go and associate with those people. Right. Cause they study all day, et cetera. Right. So I almost, you know, put up that wall and that's what I thought like the Asian American or the Asian, the stereotypical Asian is growing up. Uh, but like I said, like in my mid thirties, I had a realization that, you know, that is a, that, that itself is a stereotype and that probably is what most people think of the model minority, but that's not how Asian Americans, the like the majority of Asian Americans do not live that life in my opinion. Right. So not, not every single person is a valedictorian, uh, goes to an Ivy league, becomes a doctor or a lawyer, et cetera. So then my mind started going like, yeah, well, what, what, what is Asian Americans today mm -hmm. uh, in America today? And, and that's what crushing the myth is about. It's, it's about giving voice and platform to all Asian American uh, lifestyles. Uh, and then even more so, you know, crushing, crushing the myth is, is definitely an exploration of Asian American uh, awareness, but it's it that's not its core mission it, its core mission is to say asian americans in america today have all sorts of lifestyles and perspectives that that impact uh mainstream culture like mainstream u.s culture and let's find these stories hear what asian americans have to say about education politics, engineering, sports, science, STEM, you know, arts, culture, identity, so that we can impact Vanity Fair or The New Yorker or anything mainstream. That, that's what Crushing the Myth really is. Okay, very interesting. So the, it's interesting that you came to a point that you had to challenge your ideas of your concept of the model minority. What exactly is a line producer? Like, what does a line producer do in the um, in film? Yeah, great question. I get that asked, or I get asked that all the time. So, 
in movies, most people know directors, actors, uh, and what they do. And then producers become this kind of fuzzy thing, like, well, what does a producer do? So there are all sorts of different types of producers. Um, the easiest way to describe a producer is if you go and watch a movie, uh, all the credits that roll before the movie starts, right, at the <clears throat> beginning of the movie, uh, usually you'll see the actor names, the director name, writer, um, uh, sound composer. Those are all the creative uh, credits. And what that means is all those people are necessary to go and uh, get a movie started. So Tom, Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg say, hey, let's, let's do a movie. And they're the creative uh, names. They go to a movie studio uh, and they get financing for a movie. Uh, well, those credits that happen before the movie, th none of those people really, you know, for the most part, and it's not their responsibility, they don't know how to make a movie, meaning like they don't schedule the movie, they don't budget the movie, they don't hire all the technicians and all that kind of stuff. So if you look at the credits that happen, if you look at the credits that roll after a movie is done at the end, right, all those uh, titles that go through uh, the screen, uh, those are all the te technical credits. So you'll see your assistant directors, um, gaffers, grips, sound design, uh, makeup, those credits are all the people that technically make the movie happen. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when you, when you make a movie is all the people uh, that are before the movie, we call them above the line. They're above the line credits. Mm -hmm. uh, they come together. They decide that a movie is going to be made. They get the bank financing. And then uh, they go and, and, and effectively go hire a producer to make sure that the movie is made on schedule, on time. You know, that producer doesn't really have very much creativity involved uh, other than, you know, creativity of managing a project. But they hire that producer to make sure um, that the, the film is uh, produced correctly. Well, that producer is called a line producer, right? And the movie in the industry, the movie is the line. Mm -hmm. So when I'm a line producer, the director, actors, writers, uh, Hollywood studio execs, if you will, uh, will decide that they're going to have $50 million and then they will come and find me and then I will go and hire all the below the line credits uh, that have all the technicians that happen after the movie. And I'm responsible for the fact that the movie will get made. And that's what a line producer does. Oh, great. How did you get into that line of work? Because it seems like you have like tech background and all that. And you didn't mention what you studied in college. I don't know if that has any relation. Um, none. Not not very much. I was a liberal arts major. So, no, I, I, I don't have an engineering background or I did not study engineering. So, uh -huh. I, I was a fine arts major, like true and true, you know, broad-based liberal arts. Do you think like a lot of your experience with the line producer in the movie industry has um, uh, helped you or enlightened you at all with what you're doing with Crushing the Myth? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the, uh, I, I guess my, my functional skill is uh, managing. So any sort of project management, even in technology, um, a product manager or I've done product management before. Uh, line producing is a project manager. 
So that's kind of my functional skill. Mm-hmm. Movies was, or the entertainment industry, uh, layered on the idea of storytelling, uh, creative storytelling. So that's that's where crushing the myth. You know, crushing the myth is is not a moderated panel. It's not Q and A. Uh, it's really not like a leadership conference, but it's storytelling. Um, so uh, that probably drives my passion for storytelling. At least gave me experience. Um, exposed to creative storytelling, uh, mm-hmm. and then the technology side just hap- yeah the technology side really empowers the platform to work uh, video and some of the ideas that we're trying to test out virtually on crushing them. So I, I would say like I when people ask me you know question about what am I doing or how do I do this or why do I do this. Uh, I, I would say like I'm at this weird Venn diagram personally of uh, one circle is Asian American and understanding what Asian American is today, both in the U.S. and globally. Like one circle is Asian American, uh, one circle is technologist, and then one circle is storytelling. You know, that's my intersection. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um so when I look at crushing the myth, and I don't know if other people have said this to you, but it makes me think about the TED Talks. Like, was there sure. inspiration from that? And what do you think of TED? I love TED. I think TED is great. Um, they are a role model for me. Mm-hmm. I think that TED has done, if you look at the history of TED, started in the 80s. Uh, but it's gone through a couple of transitions and a couple of owners, actually. Um, so it's, it has been sold a couple of times. And Chris Anderson, who runs TED now, uh, I think is a really, really uh, awesome visionary, uh, the way that he brought TEDx out into the fold. Um, I do think there there's some gaps with TED that, that will be addressed. And in fact, um, I'm working, I'm talking with a couple of people now on a... Uh, a project that that is very similar to crushing the myth. It's also in the thought leadership space, uh, and it has something to do with TED Talks. Uh, so I, I think there's room to improve on TED Talks. Um, I, I do think far far and away TED Talks is, of course, like the the market leader, if you will, or, or the brand leader. And they're um, they're fantastic. Uh, CTM CTM wasn't really, a, and CTM has a long way to go. So what you see. What you see in the current version of Crushing the Myth is very much like TED Talks, uh, no doubt. So live eventing, speaker on a platform, telling, uh, in, in our case, a 10-minute monologue. Uh, and all the speakers go through our speaker coaching program. So we've developed a unique uh, Crushing the Myth speaker coaching program, just like TED Talks has theirs or the Moth or Toastmasters would have theirs. But uh, when I started Crushing the Myth, my goal was and still is today to do a full-blown annual Asian American culture conference somewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right, um, I, I called it, I still call it Crush, Crush Fest. <laughs> and it's a gathering, like maybe three days uh-huh. of thought leaders uh, in the Asian American and allies community space. More a little bit more in line with what South by Southwest does. Obviously, South by is also the leader uh, in in that kind of cultural conference idea. Um, 
But that's what that's what crushing the myth is hoping to become uh, when it grows up. Um, Ted is the 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 best comparable right now, but hopefully within the next few years, it becomes more than just a speaker series. It would be concerts, workshops. It would be panels. It would be a speaker series, but it's really focused around thought leadership. Yeah, so you're saying that's the trajectory for TED is going to more events also? No, no, I'm saying that that's the that's what I hope crushing the myth will right. be able to to get to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, how do you start something like this? Like, what are the first steps? And like, how do you? I'm imagining like so. This is you're personally funding crushing the myth then. Yes, that's correct. Uh-huh. And so how do you get started with something like this? Like what what are the first steps that you take to make this happen? A um, lot of different types of ways that people launch things. Uh, probably my experience in uh, just starting companies, you know, gives me, well, I, I guess like I, I guess I'm never afraid to just start something. Uh, I have <laughs> definitely, uh, failed uh, so many times, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't really prevent me from uh, starting something. I, I think, I mean, there's a billion ways to start something, but I think the most important thing that, uh, in, in my opinion at least, people that start things usually have lots of ideas. They have lots of things that they work on, right? And uh, for me included, like I have, a, I have ideas. Uh, but I don't just try and start every idea that I have. And the way that I tell which idea that I should invest my time to try and see if there's something there is whether or not over, I don't know, usually weeks or months, if I keep thinking about that idea every day without being paid for it. Like, let's say I have an idea to do, I don't know, a food fusion restaurant. And my work doesn't depend on it. Money doesn't depend on it. But for a matter of three to six months, I just keep thinking about, wow, how great would it be if this restaurant had that or this menu or this type of food or the decor? I just keep thinking about it uh, more than anything else. Then I know, okay, it's time to seriously uh, analyze whether or not to go for this. And then, and then when you get to that point, then yeah, then there's uh, a lot of management processes that you can do. Or uh, Anyway, so yeah, when you get to that point, then it's just a matter of like sitting down and figuring out what the right steps is to, to start something, to pilot it, to test it. Well, it's very interesting that you say that because some people think it would be the opposite, that as an entrepreneur, maybe you would think about what's the most uh, financially viable option, something that would actually be able to monetize, and that's something that you would um, try first. Um, But taking this approach, I can certainly understand it has to be something that you are so passionate and motivated about, but you can't deny that you also need some capital to execute certain things, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that should be part of your thought process. So you, first crushing the myth, the exact same. Before there was ever the first crushing the myth, uh, I was talking to friends already uh, that I wanted to launch an Asian American culture conference. Uh, having lived in Austin, I'm familiar with South by Southwest. And 
uh, having been a part of the Austin Asian American Film Festival, got a little bit closer to some of these ideas that I had. But I knew that to do the Asian American Culture Con the way that I wanted, uh, I, I think I had roughed out a budget of like 500000 in year one, which means you needed a lot of corporate sponsorship. And and I, I didn't have, you know, like I didn't, I didn't, I was not confident at all that I'd be able to raise $500,000 just on a back of the napkin idea. Mm-hmm. So then you pair that back and keep pairing it back uh, and crushing the myth. And in this form, I was like, well, what is the easiest way to prove uh, customer demand or that the, 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 the audience will show up? And uh, and I got to my mind, well, I, we should just do a speaker series. We, we do a speaker event because it's really, you have to prove that these ideas will bring people out. And then after that, then you can expand to a conference of music and comedy and all sorts of other things. So uh, I, I did not quit my job to do Crushing the Myth. <laughs> I just thought, well, I'm, I, I'll float the first few uh, and see what happens. And... To this, you know, to this day, I, I'm crushing the myth. Doesn't make any money. I mean, I'm still paying on it. You know, I'm still funding it. So, uh, it is not ready, likely to become that full blown Asian American Culture Conference where it's full time for me and a staff yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's all part of the. I, I think that's all part of the execution of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that when at the beginning you you do, and that's why I say the analysis. Like in the analysis, all of that has to happen: economic, mm-hmm. uh, economic considerations. How are you going to pay for it, etc. Yeah. Right. Well, but there, but you're right. Yeah, like there are a lot of founders that yeah. that go market mm-hmm. demand or market problem solution, execute, uh, and and succeed with those companies. And I, I would think that even a lot of them would tell you. You know, I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. I may not be passionate about, you know, this specific hardware device that is part of a value chain that got bought and sold by a larger company, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, they're very successful and there's nothing, that, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like, they had a great game plan and went and executed it. Great. Thanks for sharing that. So I see that there's a bigger picture there. In its current form, what does crushing the myth do? And like, um, I understand that right now there are a lot of people giving talks. And so, what does it offer to its participants? Because you mentioned that you prep people for their talks, and what is that process like? Currently, today there are recorded talks that you can watch uh, on Crushing the Myth uh, or on YouTube, mm-hmm. and you know you can share those talks. They're all free. Um, we did live events in the past in New York and LA. Mm-hmm. So last year we did 12 of them, pretty much like once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're not doing live events uh, because of COVID and, uh, you know, the, the, <clears throat> yeah, so basically because of COVID. So we are looking at doing more virtual events and we have done virtual events with corporate organizations uh, in their Asian American groups. So like a, like a bank, Credit, Credit Suisse or NBC Universal mm-hmm. um, or somebody like that will have an Asian American resource group and we'll do a, a virtual uh, event with them. Uh, in some schools, we'll do a virtual event with them. Uh, I am trying to build up more viewership 
So I, I would, I, I think the speakers are fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, they put a lot of time into it, and 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 definitely, I, I think that there are some really great talks. So I'm thinking about how to promote those talks and get more people to watch um, and increase our viewership. Wonderful. Um, what's been uh, one of the biggest challenges so far with uh, crushing the myth? Um, I personally, and, and and I guess this goes back to a little bit about that I that, that discussion on launching something, right? Like I'm very proud of crushing the myth, and you know if you just went to crushingthemyth.com, definitely there are some things that can be improved. I mean, should be improved. Uh, but I'm I'm personally really proud of the product that is out there, uh, the the speakers, the talks, uh, all of this, all the hard work that everybody has put in. I'm I'm super happy about that. Um, I think one of the challenges that we actually one of the challenges that we currently have is getting that product out to more audiences. And you 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 know, I, or at least I I may think like, oh, it, it, the Asian American audience uh, is a natural fit. Yeah, it, it definitely is a natural fit. But the Asian American audience is a small portion of the overall U.S. population. Uh, and the Asian American audience is definitely fragmented itself between people that care about uh, crushing the myth or Asian American perspectives and people that likely don't. So one of the struggles for CTM is that our inherent uh, size of market isn't huge, right? So it's not every American, not yet, Hopefully, I, the goal is to get to that. Sure. But right now, our inherent market isn't huge, so you know we have we have very passionate fans and followers, um, and they're awesome. And uh, you know, it's a a, a niche of a market. Mm -hmm. So I'm always thinking about ways of man, how do I get these stories to maybe even allied communities, um, adjacent communities or other Asian-American communities across the country. I don't know, like in Mississippi or Montana or Florida. Like I'm always trying to think of ways to, to get them out there. What have been some of the highlights of doing this work? Like I'm sure that um, you probably have stories of how just going through this experience for the people who are doing the talks, like how it's impacted them or changed them. For me, one of the highlights is definitely meeting all the speakers. Um, I, I do spend time with them. I, it's funny, we, I think we're close to 80 or 90 speakers now. Uh -huh. And because we, well, I would say this, like out of 80 or 90 speakers, maybe the first event, first couple of events, uh, a number of the speakers were people I knew from, from you know, just my network mm -hmm. uh, and they spoke. But now over like 80, 90 speakers and these are like amazing people with doing amazing things uh, very, very back, varied backgrounds. Um, I, I probably only knew 15 of them before. Mm. So that's a whole bunch of people that you get to meet right. while organizing Crushing the Myth. That is absolutely one of the highlights for me personally. Um, and then hearing their stories, right? And getting their back. And we have speakers who are, I remember um, Vicky who spoke in New York at Asia Society last May, uh, she 
she was uh, referred to us by Apex for Youth, uh, who uh, they're a great organization in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's a high school sophomore. <laughs> and, right, and uh, I didn't know Vicky. Uh, she didn't know me. And one of the counselors at Apex for Youth put out a, a call to say, you know, who would like to speak at the speaker series? And I, I think he, Vicky responded. And then suddenly she uh, said, yeah, I, I like to do this. <clears throat> and at that point, I had not really, uh, we had not developed our full speaker coaching program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I talked to Vicky on the phone, never met her in person. First time I met her in person was the night that she spoke. And uh, usually, I, I did, back then, I didn't spend that much time with each speaker. Mm-hmm. But with Vicky, I ended up spending like 10 hours that week or maybe the, the two weeks before. So we had like multiple phone calls working out her talk, her ideas. She spoke about the uh, SAT controversy in public school systems in New York City. And this was last uh, summer, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was just going through it because she's, uh, she's a high schooler. Right. So it was awesome to see how she took a, a topic that she wanted to talk about and really work with her to formulate an awesome talk. And the Night of Asia Society, we had 10 speakers. Uh, most of the speakers are Ronnie Mazumdar, uh, was the founder and owner of the Masalawala in East Village. Mm-hmm. And he spoke, right? Ace um, is the founder of the Spot Desertery, and he spoke. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then here's Vicky getting up on stage, like 16-year-old, uh, and, and she does a wonderful job, and everybody is up there clapping. Like, that was, that was a nice moment. That's incredible. Wow. Like, what's your experience personally with um, public speaking? Because, you know, we always hear people say that public speaking is, like, one of the number one fears. It, it's not my number one fear. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I've, uh, I've had to do a lot of pitches uh, <laughs> in my lifetime. So whether it was a film producer uh, or it was a found, technology company found, or founder of anything. So I, I've done lots and lots of pitch workshops. Uh, I've been a part of it. I've gone through a couple accelerator programs. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, I, I'm always interested in doing a sales pitch, an investment pitch, a creative pitch uh, better um, personally. Right? I, I think that if you can motivate people uh, through kind of a story that you're telling, mm-hmm. um, that really lands an impact. So, yeah. 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 Anyone, that, anyone that's afraid of public speaking and, and then you want to be, yeah, and I would even say, like, uh, there, there's a level of this where it's, like, public speaking. Like, I, I want to go out on tour and get paid to speak in public. Then that's a craft, and you're going to have to hone that really well. There are a lot of seminars out there that will teach you how to do that. Uh, that's one path. Right. Um, but I also think that a lot of people need to, you know, understand how to tell their story well. Um the most, I mean, you do this all the time. Like everybody does this. When you meet somebody at a bar or a restaurant mm-hmm. or a friend, you have to tell your story. Um, 
the, I, I think the scenario that most people think about is like when you interview for a job, you have to tell the story of your career or your work. Mm-hmm. So you have to be prepared to do that. But but I think that you almost are telling the story of your life, you know, many times over uh, in in your day to day. Right. So what's the process? Um, do you have a selection process for people who want to do a Crushing the Myth talk or how does that work? Not, no, not right now. Uh, before when we had the live events, because there were only seven to 10 speakers per event, uh, we did have to kind of narrow down people. So you can go to Crushing the Myth, the website, and apply to be a speaker. There's a little uh, form there. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's through referrals. So somebody will say, oh, I know somebody who'd be uh, a great speaker, then they'll connect me via email or uh, social, uh, and then I'll go and, um, you know, talk to them. But now, uh, because it's virtual, we are essentially, you know, like we're, we're very open and welcoming to anybody that wants to share their story. And uh, all of it is free. So what we offer for free is a three-session group speaker coaching workshop, virtually, done virtually. So you'd be in a group of about three people and over three separate one-hour sessions with a speaker coach, we would help you take whatever topic you want to talk about and condense that into a 10-minute speech or a 10-minute story. so, and if you're willing to do that, then you can go through crushing it. Right. So those three people are also um, speakers. Yes. Yeah. So you get paired with, th- yeah, you get paired with two other speakers okay. that want to share a story. Right. Right. And then the three of you are getting coached together virtually with the speaking coach, however you want to call them. Yes. And so since you're in this um, space of helping people to give these public talks wherever do you have any quick public speaking tips that you can share with people I like if you're speaking in public make eye contact and I think that there's some more nuanced things like uh, you know uh, don't wander too much uh, shorter is better usually um, I, I personally and my friends growing up or even my 20s would usually say that I used to tell like these long stories uh, <laughs> And while they could be engaging, they were just really long. <laughs> and I, I really tried to work on condensing stories and even sentences to not meander as much. Um, what about any tips for how to look better on a camera, especially video? Because photos are one thing, but video is an entirely other thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good lighting. Yeah. Uh, good background. Yeah. Lighting background, I think, are really important for... Uh, videos just as, as a base base you know um, steps so and of course you want to get a good angle depending on what angle you know you you feel like you look best in that's about it is there anything else you'd like to let my listeners know like how they can find out more about crushing the myth thanks for having me on and again crushing the com, just like how it's uh, sounds uh, free videos uh, and amazing stories from Asian American speakers uh, and their perspectives. And then we do quite a bit on our Instagram, so it's also crushing the myth. Mm-hmm. So just stay up to date. 
uh, we release one or two videos a week mm -hmm. and um, uh, I hope viewers enjoy them. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is fun. I've been speaking with J.D. Chang, a serial entrepreneur and founder of Crushing the Myth, a speaker series that aims to crush the model minority myth. Crushing the Myth is about telling Asian American stories that make people listen, learn, and inspired. We will share links for you to connect with and follow Crushing the Myth and JD, and other related links on our website, www.talkingtaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.